Welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's Friday, January 23rd, 2015, and this week is episode 353. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, and here with me in the studio, and and I'm running the show, but I still have Frank Zappa Amato in the background engineering to make sure I don't screw things up too much. Calling in from the McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hello, everybody. Good day, Cliff. All right. Uh, this week's guest will be Brent Kynock. Brent is the Managing Director of EIA, the Environmental Information Association, and he's also the founder of Kynock Environmental Management down in the uh, Washington, D.C. area. Before we get started, let's take uh, 20 seconds and thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at John Don. J-O-N-D-O-N dot com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X dot com and C-M-M-Online dot com. I-A-Q dot net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. Okay, folks, now you can stream the show from our website homepage or follow the link at the top that says go to show. There you can either stream or download shows, and of course you can subscribe to our podcast from um, from iTunes. And then uh, last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. So many of your answers is easy, either email it to czalotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. <laughs> to Virginia Vic, Victor Cafaro from Chevy Chase, um, Virginia, for first correct answer to last week's trivia question. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, January 23rd, 2015, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Today's trivia question is, what is the origin of the word asbestos? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. All right, this week's guest is Brent Kynock. He's the Managing Director of the Environmental Information Association and owner of Kynock Environmental Management. 
He has been the managing director of EIA since 1996, but he also served EIA in numerous volunteer roles on the board of directors as an officer and also as the president from 1988 to 1989. EIA has spent 30 years at the forefront in providing its members with the information needed to remain knowledgeable, responsible, and competitive in the environmental health and safety industry. When he changes his hat to his paying job, he's the president of Kynock Environmental Management, an environmental engineering and industrial hygiene firm, also headquartered in Chevy Chase, Maryland. He began his career in the environmental business in 1984 when he founded his first company, and he sold that one in 99. He's a graduate of Vanderbilt University, where he received a degree in mechanical engineering. And we've got some music. All right, Brent, we have you on the line. I'm on the line. Welcome. Joe and Cliff, how are you guys? Great, great to have you. I, I don't know if you could hear that music. I, uh, I'm at the controls and I'm a rookie here, so it might not have been loud enough, but uh, it's an interesting little asbestos, lead asbestos tune that uh, Cliff picked up from for us here. All right, let's... Let's start a little bit about your background. I know you started at Train, and then um, you had that mechanical engineering degree. And then, how did you go from Train over to to doing environmental engineering and starting your own environmental company? Uh, you know, there's a, there's a great story behind that. Um, uh, train uh, Train makes a business of of hiring engineers to be uh, sales engineers, and that's why I went. Um, went with train air conditioning and, and ended up in Washington, D.C. with them in the sales office here. And one of my clients, a mechanical contractor, uh, pulled me aside uh, late one evening when I was in their office trying to do some takeoffs uh, for some air conditioning equipment and said, what do you know about asbestos? And my response was, you know, it's bad for you. I, that, that's about all I know. But, you know, one of the advantages of being here in D.C. is uh, – uh, you got some friends typically that work somewhere up on Capitol Hill, so I was able to pull a whole bunch of information about asbestos, uh, all the EPA publications and so on, and drop it on the desk of my client. Uh, and and uh, about two weeks later, my client came to me and said, you know, you think there's any opportunity to make money in this business? And I said, heck yeah, I think there is. And one thing led to another, and uh, with his money and my effort, uh, I started my first uh, asbestos consulting business. Huh. Interesting. I, I fell into it myself in a kind of unusual way. Where are you from originally? I know you went to Vanderbilt, and now you're in the D.C. area. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, okay. Well, Vanderbilt's kind of uh, down in that area, so that makes a little more sense. And what, 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 how did you end up in D.C.? Uh, my first job with train air conditioning brought me to D.C. Ah, okay, okay, and you've been there ever since now, and this is what, you're looking at 30 years in that area. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, and then, now I know, and I recall from back in, in the late 80s, that the Environmental Information Association at, at that time was called the National Asbestos Council, and I guess you, I, I know in the intro we said you were president in 88 and 89, and, and how did you get involved with the EIA? Listen, that is correct, and and uh, you know when you when you've been in a business for uh, for thirty years like this, uh, you know you kind of go all the way back to the beginning of the business, and and uh, that's that's really my story. Uh, I 
took a course from Georgia Tech, who was the first EPA-sponsored training center for asbestos uh, back in 1984, and in that process uh, met some of the people that were instrumental in starting the National Asbestos Council and became involved right then because I was starting my business right at that same time. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Good. Um, Can you tell us what the Environmental Information Association's mission is and how it's being fulfilled? Sure, absolutely, and thanks for asking, Cliff. Uh, The Environmental Information Association um, is – our mission is to collect, generate, and disseminate information about environmental issues and buildings and facilities to our membership, and that is – that is an outgrowth of the National Asbestos Council's mission as well. Uh, When the National Asbestos Council was founded by really this group that centered around the training that was going on at Georgia Tech, the idea was, hey, there's a whole bunch of information about asbestos out there. And you've got to remember, this was the early 80s. It's a whole bunch of misinformation about asbestos. And we want to put together a group that's dedicated to providing accurate, honest, unbiased um, information about asbestos in buildings. Uh, and, and we think we have a unique way of doing that. And uh, that's, that was the formation of NAC. And as we've grown into covering other areas, including lead paint and mold and indoor air quality, that mission has stayed the same. You know, back in those days, Asbestos was a big enough uh, field, basically, that it could support an association uh, pretty much on its own. And then, um, as as you said, when you got into the 90s, I guess, you morphed into the lead area, which is another, you know, pretty good size area. And then uh, when did you start to focus more on other indoor environmental issues like indoor air quality? Well, that really all started kind of, as you said, Joe, in in the 90s. And, and, you know, lead paint was really the first issue, I guess, outside of asbestos that the membership of the National Asbestos Council said, hey, you know, all of us as members are becoming involved in this area, and maybe we should uh, morph our association to deal with it. And then the other thing that came along at that point in time was radon, if you guys recall. Uh, a lot of a lot of uh, kind of misinformation about radon at that time as well. So lead and radon were coming along, and as that happened and as the association changed its name, and that was in 92, from National Asbestos Council to EIA. Uh, there were other issues that the association decided it would kind of pull under its umbrella as well, which included uh, indoor air quality concerns, mold, to, to some degree uh, uh, underground tanks, and uh, uh, issues kind of surrounding phase one environmental site assessments. I see. And now, how, how big of a group? Is EIA now? How many members do you have now, and and how has that changed over the years? I don't I don't recall the numbers back in the day when I was involved in in the late '80s and early '90s, but I'm curious to know how that trend has been. Sure. Currently, EIA is 600 members uh, in the U.S. and Canada, with and with uh, oh probably about three or four members in the United Kingdom as well. Uh, and and the trend, uh, you know, kind of as you pointed out, Joe. When the organization started, and I joined it in 1984, there were probably, oh, two or 300 members. And by 1989, there were 2,000 members of this association. 
And uh, then in the early 90s, that membership fell off to something that looked like three or 400 members. Mm. Okay. And that, and that was, I would imagine that was part of the reason you branched out into the other areas as well. You wanted to get more members. It, it all kind of happened simultaneously. But, you know, we also faced the uh, savings and loan crisis and, and a huge real estate, uh, you know, concerns back in, in uh, those times. And, and that changed a lot of what was happening uh, specifically in the asbestos abatement industry. A lot of consolidation among firms, a lot of uh, uh, large roll-ups were formed and that kind of thing. So the membership dropped rather substantially. Cliff, let me turn it back to you. Can you tell us how the organization uh, is organized? Is it just a national? Do you have regional affiliates? How's it set up? Sure, Cliff. Uh, we are a national organization with uh, with a group of local chapters as well, and we're working hard to continue to expand that chapter organization because, um, you know, obviously, as you probably know, a lot of the great information exchange and camaraderie occurs more on a local level than it does on a national level. So uh, we've got chapters uh, in Georgia, in the Carolinas, in Arizona, uh, and and other areas as well, and we're working continually to grow that chapter organization. You know, I'm wondering if we could get maybe go down this list a little bit and, and get your thoughts on, we have a good size group of disaster restoration folks that follow the show, then we have our uh, our indoor air quality people and, and some building owners, et cetera. I'm just curious, though, with respect to these different issues, asbestos, lead, radon, et cetera, I wonder if, what your thoughts are with respect to people considering getting into asbestos abatement now. I mean, you know, some people look at it as, well, you know, isn't the asbestos all gone? Uh, but our disaster restoration folks, they, they run into asbestos on projects and, you know, they're trying to dry out a building and they've got to stop at least handling a certain area of the building because they run into asbestos-containing materials, etc. What would you recommend? Would you recommend that they go ahead and start their own little asbestos company or work with someone more closely? Or how would you handle that? Well, you know, back back in the uh, back in the eighties, when I got in this business, uh, the, the bar to enter the asbestos business was pretty low. Uh, there were some regulations around asbestos, uh, but really no certification process and accreditation process. And now that all exists for asbestos, so the bar is. The bar has uh, been raised rather substantially. You've got to make a pretty significant investment in training and accreditation for people in order to get in the asbestos abatement business. And in fact, the the uh, uh, disaster response business has has done a great job, literally, probably just in the last three years or so, of recognizing that uh, asbestos exists in places like drywall joint compound. Uh, and hey, we can't just tear out. Uh, a section of wet drywall, we've got to check first to make sure we don't have asbestos in the joint compound, or we might be exposing a lot of people to airborne asbestos fibers. So, and and there's licensing, and then there's, um, you know, record keeping, and, and you, you mentioned the training and and, and certification. I don't know, is it a certification or, or more of a licensing? And It's, it's a licensing that's required uh, in every state and in some cases uh, even down in a local city or county jurisdiction. You know, it's been a long time since I, I, I was very involved with asbestos for a long time and, and had training centers that I ran around the country for, for a company I worked for. And, and at the time, 
it was very difficult for large contractors or contractors that went from state to state to deal with the licensing issue because the reciprocity between states was not as good as they would like. And this is, we're talking about through the 90s, basically. It seemed to get a little better toward the end of the 90s. How have things been over the last 15 years? They've really not changed substantially since since the the, the period you just described, since the late 90s. Uh, things did get better. Yeah, they were uh, originally when the um, regulations uh, came into effect that required all of this licensing, yeah, it was extremely difficult, and there was very little reciprocity, and that eased up a little bit. But uh, uh, today, it, it really hasn't improved any since uh, since the end of the 90s, beginning of the, of the uh, 2000s. And in fact, in a, in a couple of cases, uh, there have been some more hurdles put in the way. And the one that comes to my mind immediately is that um, here in Maryland, uh, if you went in for an asbestos training course at the conclusion of the course, the training provider provided an exam, and if you, uh, you know, successfully completed the exam with a passing score, you were able to get your your license from the state. And actually, the the training provider issued those licenses. Uh, now, the state of Maryland. Uh, uh, requires you after the training has been completed, you've got to go uh, to a state facility and actually sit for an exam and take it. And that might be a month or two months after you've actually had your training uh, before you can actually sit for an exam and obtain your license. You know, you bring up a good point, and then, and you know, it takes a while to get the, the licensing exam, but I also have clients of mine that decide they want to go into the asbestos world. They call me. Where can I get training? And and they find it difficult to get that initial four-day worker, five-day supervisor training that's approved by the state that they are in or that you know has reciprocity with some other state. That seems to be a real issue in your industry as well. Yeah, I won't disagree with that. I think the, uh, the industry has kind of matured to the point that finding those initial courses – uh, as opposed to the refresher courses that are required annually, uh, is getting tougher and tougher to find because the training providers advertise the courses and there's just not much of a demand out there to fill the seats in those courses. And, and, and you as a training provider certainly understand that filling seats is critically important to making that work. Yeah, and you get cancellations and that really throws people off. And And has EIA ever considered... Or do you now? I really don't know. I know enough about the organization. I don't think you're providing any state-approved training now, but have you ever considered doing that? Well, you know, you're correct. Uh, EI does not provide training, um, and, and, and the decision on that was that um, as much as it might be enticing to get in the training business, especially as a, you know, as a, as a kind of a national nonprofit organization, We've got so many members that actually are training providers that would be competing with our own membership, so we don't do that. Now, back in the, back when this organization was the National Asbestos Council, uh, the National Asbestos Council actually received a grant from OSHA to set up uh, a training organization, a training network. And so the organization was providing training back in the 80s and, and, and through the 90s and, and well into uh, – into the 2000s, but in about uh, 2004, 2005, the board made a decision to no longer do the training. I see. And and how are things like in, you know, we have listeners from, oh, you know, Wyoming or, um, you know, uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, areas where 
you know, the population density is just not there. Um, how do they how do they get their training? Uh, I would imagine it's tough to get enough people to, to sponsor or to run an initial training course. Oh, there are training providers that certainly, um, you know, serve those areas, and, and we keep a list of all of those training providers. The EPA also has a list of all those training providers. So they're out there. I, I will agree, uh, you, you know, the you might have to wait several months to actually get an initial course because that's the only way that the training provider can assure that they've got enough seats filled that it makes economic sense to run the course. Uh, but but they're certainly out there, and there's enough training providers out there uh, that that you know getting the training is is certainly possible, even though you may have to wait for that initial course. Okay, that sounds good. Now now the other thing is you mentioned that you have a list of those providers. Is that something people could find on your website or should they call the office? How do you handle that? Not on our website, but we certainly they could call the office and we can provide that to them or or actually just uh, you know, give them the name of training providers that might be serving their geographic area. Great. Okay, Cliff, let me turn it back to you for a minute. Um can you provide um I guess Joe and I and the listeners with some sort of breakdown of uh, EIA membership. You know, you mentioned that some of the membership are training providers. Um, do you have contractors? Do you have government uh, agencies? Do you have, you know, universities? Uh, how does the membership break out? Sure, and thanks for asking, Cliff. You know, one of the things that makes EIA unique that was unique about the National Asbestos Council was the idea was to be a multidisciplinary organization. So the association doesn't really represent or, or advocate for the interest of any one group, contractors, consultants, laboratories, training providers. We have all of those as members. And, and as you might imagine, the two largest segments of our membership are contractors and consultants uh, in the, in the you know, indoor environment, the asbestos-led business, and those are primarily our members are, are doing asbestos and lead work. Contractors, a little bit larger group uh, than consultants. About 32% of our members are contractors. About 29% of our members are consultants. And then uh, from there, the next largest group is laboratories, uh, then training providers. And then we go down into uh, about an even split among um, uh, equipment providers, manufacturers, distributors, government members, uh, colleges and universities, and so on and so forth. Okay, thank you. You know, you mentioned government, and, and I know, as I've followed over the years, the, the EIA conference, which we'll talk about in a moment, you, you seem to have a very good relationship with um, government speakers coming in and uh, a good relationship with, with government regulators because it is a highly regulated, well, you started out in a highly regulated area, asbestos, lead, et cetera. How, did, how does EIA get those contacts in the first place and then maintain them? Do you have like a government affairs committee? Is that just something that's happening naturally? You know, it's uh, the beginning of that, the nexus of that, Joe, was – really around the fact that the organization was multidisciplinary. And since we didn't advocate for any one group of our membership, the government officials, the regulators, those, those people that were writing and enforcing regulations that affected our business, felt comfortable uh, in the midst of our group because they realized they were, they were talking to 
contractors, consultants, training providers, building owners, you name it. Uh, and we've been able to cultivate those relationships because of it. And then as the years went by and, uh, you know, the, our, our contacts at government organizations realized that that mission um, has stayed the same, uh, they've actually reached out to our organization for uh, advice and to review documents uh, and, and to review upcoming regulations, that kind of thing, uh, and mainly because they knew what they were going to get was an honest, unbiased answer that was looked at by you know all facets of our membership and not just not just benefiting one part of that membership. And do you do you have like a lobbying arm, or do you have anybody that uh, you know government affairs that goes out and tries to help lobby government to include your members in regulations, for instance? You, you know, based based on the type of organization we are, which is a five hundred one c six, which is an educational organization, we're not allowed to lobby, uh, and we don't lobby. But but what we have done is we provide uh, ourselves as an information. Uh, an educational resource to people that are involved in that process. So we certainly hold ourselves out, and that's one of my jobs as managing director. We hold ourselves out uh, not only to the regulators that, that are you know, trying to enforce existing regulations, but even to congressional staff uh, uh, who are, might be working on new regulations or improved regulations. We try to hold ourselves out as uh, a source for information and insight about what's really happening in the industry. Okay. Hey, I've got a text here from a listener um, asking if you can give any insight on, on new D.C. asbestos regs and uh, new Maryland lead law. Uh, I could give a little insight on that. And, and, in fact, you know, that's one of the things that's very interesting in our industry in general. We've been a lot of years without significant changes, uh, certainly in the asbestos industry, and we're beginning to see some things change now. Uh, the District of Columbia uh, is working on some improvements and some changes to their regulations. Um, most specifically, what the D.C. Uh, changes will involve is they will require a third-party independent uh, air monitoring firm that's hired by the owner to oversee an asbestos abatement project. Currently, the regulation allows uh, that work to be performed by uh, a firm that could be even hired by the abatement contractor. Uh, and, and the folks that run that program at the D.C. government have realized that uh, there's a little bit of a conflict there and in some ways might be the uh, uh, fox watching the hen house, so to speak. Uh, so they're coming out with those changes. You know, New York City already requires a third-party independent, uh, but that's not been required in D.C., and in, in Maryland, uh, we've got uh, some lead laws that just went into effect uh, January 1st that require that um, uh, any uh, rental property built uh, after 1978 uh, requires uh, lead dust testing at the time of turnover uh, unless there's been uh, an XRF study that has shown that the property is uh, free of lead-based paint. That's pretty stringent there on the on the uh, property owners. Huh? It is very stringent, and, and D.C. has had that regulation in effect for about two years. And, and what has happened in Maryland is it's it's all, almost identical to what uh, D.C. has done. But uh, uh, a property owner, property manager working on behalf of the owner, has got 
to perform um, an XRF study in accordance with the HUD guidelines in order to say that a property is lead-free. Uh, and if it's not lead-free, then uh, that every time uh, a dwelling unit turns over, there's a requirement to provide lead dust testing to assure that there's no lead dust hazard in there. There's also some pretty significant registration fees uh, associated with it. So, you know, frankly, it's it's uh, I think it's Maryland's way of uh, trying to push property owners to get rid of lead paint uh, because the registration fees are high enough that uh, it, it would encourage you to take that money and spend it on getting rid of the lead instead of just giving it to the state every year. What what amount are we looking at there? How much money? You're looking at, at $30 per year per unit. Uh, so if you have a – imagine if you've got a two- or three-hundred-unit apartment complex, you're paying $30 per year per unit, plus every time you turn over a unit, you're going to be paying um, uh, a risk assessor to come in and conduct lead dust testing, and that's going to be anywhere from 200 to $500, depending on the size of the unit or the firm that you've hired to provide it. So those numbers can get pretty big after a while. If you're lead-free, you still got to register with the state if you were built before 78, but you register one time, and it's a $10 fee per unit, and then you never you never register again. Interesting. I, I know Maryland and Baltimore in particular had some pretty significant lead paint issues, so I, I would imagine that's helped drive this. It certainly has, and, and, and Baltimore and the people that were running that program in Baltimore uh, have really been – at the forefront of pushing these kinds of things for years. I see. Hey, well, well this is uh, Brent Kynock. Thanks for the first half here. What we're going to do is we're going to stop for just a moment here. We've got to thank our sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. You can learn more about them at iaqa.org. We'd like to thank our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn more about them at legends enviro.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. And of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, where restoration and a big tractor shop. Visit them at John Don, that's J O N D O N.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at CLEANFAX.com and CMMOnline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you acquire about their services and products. All right, and let's not forget IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. 
Okay, let's get back to the second half of our show. We've got the Managing Director of the Environmental Information Association, Brent Kynox, joining us. It's been a, a very interesting, Brent. You're bringing me back down memory lane here with uh, a lot of this asbestos and lead-related stuff. Let's talk a little bit about your next convention. Uh, I know you've had an annual convention for quite a long time now. How many years have you been doing the convention, and where's the next one at? We've been doing this for 31 years, Joe, and, and I, you know, I do want to say that, that I, I, I grinned ear to ear when you said taking you down memory lane. I, I felt the same way just having the opportunity to to be talking with two of you guys today because there's just not a whole lot of us that have been around for 30 years <laughs> in this industry, and uh, it, it's an honor to be talking to both of you today. Well, Thank great, you. great to have you on. So where you're going to be in, what, Atlanta, I believe, this year? That's correct. We'll be in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, which is is really the, the the birthplace of this organization, the National Asbestos Council, which was founded around the whole Georgia Tech uh, uh, training uh, effort that was funded by EPA. And our conference uh, runs from March 22nd through March 25th at the Grand Hyatt Atlanta, in which is in Buckhead uh, section of Atlanta, Georgia. Okay, and what what uh, what type of presentations can people expect to see there? You know, in in, uh, in much the same way that, that you know, we uh, pride ourselves on being a multidisciplinary organization, you're going to see presentations uh, uh, that, that are presented by people that are in different industries uh, or different parts of our industry, if you will, and then presentations that range from things like um, uh, asbestos abatement issues to uh, ethics issues surrounding uh, the work that CIHs do to Ebola contamination, preventing uh, spread of Legionella outbreaks. Uh, I can go on down the list, but there's a wide range of topics. And we have, uh, we try to divide that into tracks as well. Uh, most specifically, uh, we work to provide a track that we think that contractors would be uh, most interested in because we know that uh, contractors are a very important part of our audience. We've got 21 sessions uh, over the uh, uh, three days of our uh, conference. So uh, we have a plenary session each morning, which is uh, everybody that's there attending can come to uh, a plenary session, and then we break out into uh, – three concurrent sessions that go on for the rest of the day for uh, each of those three days. Cliff? Um, what sort of, is there any training that will go on at the, uh, at the convention, any training classes that, are, that go along with it or before or after? Uh, Cliff, no training classes per se that would result in, in any uh, certification uh, however, uh, by attending our conference, uh, you know, we register with a lot of different organizations for certification maintenance credits, whether you be a certified industrial hygienist or you have a certification provided by ACDAC or uh, 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 registered architects, registered engineers uh, also can get um, continuing education credits by attending our conference. I guess as a follow-up, does EIA have a position on certification? And uh, if they do, uh, would they recommend a particular group or groups? You know, our position on certification is that uh, uh, that there's we have a, a relationship with uh, ACAC, uh, the American Council for Accredited Certification, and uh, we see that they are really the only organization that's providing true uh, accreditation 
that's specific to our industry, and so that's the reason we've teamed with them and we consider them a partner in providing those uh, certifications. Okay, thanks. What, what other Joe? things, I'm curious, what other things do you, would you feel make EIA conventions unique or, or different? I mean, I was just, first, before we go there, I want to congratulate you on something. I was looking at your website, and I noticed that, like you accept, you'll get a discounted uh, registration if you're a member of any number of organizations. I thought that was great, and I want to add. I want to talk yes. to you about. It. I'm not sure if IICRC was on there, but I'd like to get that added next year if we can. But anyway, they're on there, Joe. Are they on there? Okay, great, great, good to hear. All right, now, I, first, I want to congratulate you. On your, I think that's great. You know that that you guys will give a discount to any member from from any number of great organizations, but. I'm also curious, there's so many conventions nowadays. What makes yours unique? What makes it stand out from other industry conventions? Thanks, Joe, and, and, and thanks for the congratulations uh, as well. That, that is something that, that we decided to do several years ago, and it's, it's, it's been great for us, and I hope for the people from other organizations that have attended our conference as well. What, what we hear over and over from our attendees is that, the, the quality of the sessions that are provided at an EIA conference, the quality of the speakers, and the the, um, uh, the, the, the educational value of these sessions exceeds anything they get at other conferences. Now, and that's not to diminish the importance of other conferences, but we seem to have uh, been able to attract uh, uh, the speakers that – people want to see and hear from, and we've been able to set up uh, our sessions and the way we've organized our sessions that we provide a unique opportunity for learning. But even beyond that, there's a unique opportunity for networking and for uh, camaraderie that exists at an EIA conference. That's the other thing that if you were to attend one, you would really feel. There's a level of camaraderie and collegiality among the people that attend an EIA conference that gets people to come back again because you develop relationships with others that may be doing the same thing you're doing, but from another area of the country, you can share ideas, insights about what's worked for you, what's not worked for you, and and uh, uh, that keeps people coming back. You know, I'm curious, what EIA has morphed over the years. You know, you went from the National Asbestos Council, you, you were doing lead, you, you, we mentioned radon. I hope we have time to go into that a little bit more as, as we go through the interview. What do you see in the future here? Um, what does the future hold? Are we going to morph more? Or are we just going to kind of consolidate with what you have? I think you can expect us to consolidate with what we have. We we really are the only uh, membership organization out there that has a very strong focus on asbestos, and we realize that. We realize that that's critically important to our membership, so we will certainly continue there. Uh, secondarily, uh, our I think our the information we provide around uh, lead-based paint is critically important to our membership, and, and I think that there are other organizations that are involved in uh, lead paint issues, but once again, I think EIA kind of is in a position that, that we've been able to, to kind of stand out in that regard. When you get into indoor air quality and mold and those kinds of concerns, clearly there are other organizations that do a fantastic job of providing information there. Uh, uh, so uh, we'll continue in those areas to try to provide information that kind of fills the spectrum of what our membership may be active and involved in and concerned about, but we'll continue our focus in asbestos and lead as well. 
You know, it seems that has served you well, at least from my experience, Brent. Um, even though it's not the largest field, you know, it's not a growing area, the, the asbestos in particular, you seem to do a good job of creating a loyalty within your membership. I know several in particular that I work with. I see one online here today, and I want to say hello to her. She'll know who I'm talking about. And they're very loyal um, members, and, and they seem to have stuck around for many, many years. And sometimes that's more important than, than big numbers. And, and, I, and I bet I know who you're talking about that's online as well, and she is a loyal member, has been a loyal member, and is a loyal member of other organizations as well. And she's she's a uh, been a valuable resource uh, not only to EIA but to other organizations. And, yeah, we're, we're delighted to have people like that, and we take great pride in that. And uh, th- that's what I was trying to convey when I said that's what makes our conferences unique, I think, is we've got the kind of people that have, that have been around in this industry for a long time, as well as newcomers. And I think even when the newcomers come, they realize that uh, uh, they're surrounded by some people who are the best minds uh, in our industry. And uh, when you can sit down and uh, have a conversation with them and maybe even have a cocktail with them at a social event, uh, it's a great opportunity. Let me get into a little bit more on the regulatory activity because this is always something that interests you know whether you're in asbestos lead mold uh, indoor air quality disaster restoration water damage hvac cleaning um regulatory changes have a direct effect on your bill on your business can you tell us a little bit about what you see as far as any regulatory activity uh, in the future? What what seems to be taking place, and and uh, you know what can we see as the regulated industry uh, expect from the you know with respect to changes or new additions? You see us going in new directions or tightening up what we already have? You know, uh, and in a lot of ways, you know, we're we're all in this industry that is either driven by. Uh, regulations or is driven by uh, liability concerns, uh, which really which pushes all of us into doing what we're doing. And, uh, you know, oddly enough, uh, there are some changes uh, underway currently. I've just mentioned a couple in, in D.C. and Maryland, but the uh, uh, state of Florida has some uh, regulations around mold and uh, training and licensure and certification requirements for persons involved in the industry in New York State has some regulations around uh, mold that are very similar to what FAR is looking at. So there is some regulatory activity uh, going on in the areas of asbestos and lead paint and mold as we speak. And, and the reason I say it's, it's interesting, you know, to those of us outside the industry, uh, to those persons that are outside the industry, they may say, yeah, you know, regulations have been the same for years. Now there's kind of a groundswell right now uh, of changes that are coming to try and address the uh, the loopholes, if you will, that exist in the current regulations and to try and close those up. Let me ask about this with respect to training, Brent. I know this has been a, a pet peeve of, of mine and many people in the asbestos world for a long time, and that's the annual refresher requirement where you've got to go and take your 24th building inspector refresher for the last 24 years here and let's face it, not that much has changed over the last, I mean, things change over the years, but is it really necessary to have a refresher every year? Is there any, do you see any changes in that respect? I haven't seen anything uh, coming down the line with changes to that respect. 
Okay. Uh, but but I do appreciate what you're saying. You know, there's not a whole lot that changes. But then again, um, uh, you know, if a regulation changes that uh, is in a geographic area that might affect you, maybe the only way you're going to find out about it is by going to a refresher course. So uh, there's certainly some value in those courses, after all. Well, it's interesting because you go from asbestos, which is every year, then you go to lead, which I think is still every two years, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. And then you go to mold, and essentially there's nothing unless you've got a state regulation. Although you know to have a mold certification, there's some continuing education requirements, etc. And 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 then you go to things like um, I don't know meth lab decontamination, where you know uh, there's very little out there. So it's it's very interesting the way um, things are regulated. It would seem there would be more consistency across these different fields, but you know I think that's part of the 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 same capsules you see within government, you know. Um, and by the way, we had a great comment from uh, Joy Finch said uh, not only networking with peers but also with regulators. So you guys get to network with those regulators. But do they seem kind of um, in their own silo? Like the, the asbestos people don't really deal that much with the lead, don't deal that much with the indoor air quality, or is that my imagination? Uh, you know, to some degree, they're in their own silos, but, uh, you know, they've gotten better at talking to each other uh, over the years. You know, back back in the early days of uh, uh, the asbestos regulatory efforts, if you will, and that's really in the, uh, in the late 70s and into the 80s, you know, for instance, OSHA and EPA really didn't speak with each other. And, in fact, you had regulations that, uh, if they weren't in conflict with each other, certainly – uh, had some different approaches to the way things should be regulated. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, they've come together over the years and, and realized that, that there's some um, some synergy between the two regulations. And, in fact, uh, it, even within the regulatory framework, there's references back and forth now, which is, uh, which is great. And, and, uh, but we continue to face, uh, at the federal and at the state level, we continue to face these uh, budget concerns that mean that the um, the enforcement of regulations is the largest problem that that we see right now as an association that exists in our industries. We've got some regulations out there that have some um, uh, uh, some great methods and processes involved in the regulations, but very little enforcement activity. Well, and I wonder if your members also complain about. And I hear this, and I have for years, and I wonder how it's, you know, if it's getting any better or any worse. It seems like the people that are trying to follow the regulations and get their licenses, they're the ones who see the enforcement when there are other people out there running with a truck and a ladder that don't see the enforcement. And uh, that exists and continues to exist, and, and hopefully it gets a little bit smaller every year. But, yeah, you're exactly right. And the kinds of people that are coming to the EIA conferences or going to – uh, other conferences as well are, are, are not the people certainly that uh, we're trying to reach. You're trying to reach those that are uneducated and, and uh, maybe need some help in understanding what they need to do to comply with the regulations. Cliff, I've been dominating it again. Let me get back to you, see if you have anything you want to ask. i got a question in regards to vermiculite, uh, insulation contaminated you know, with asbestos. Uh, any interest on that subject within your association yeah there is a interest within our association in that and in fact there's a uh, a new vermiculite trust that has recently been set up to fund uh, uh, 
abatement of vermiculite insulation from homes that contain it, and this trust uh, uh, will pay for a portion, will reimburse actually for a portion of an effort to remove vermiculite from homes, and uh, we certainly will be spreading information about that through our association and uh, contractors that are members of our association, their names will be a part of this uh, ZAI trust um, as, as resources uh, to go to to get work done. Thank you. You know, Brent, I'm wondering if, you know, if you had that magic wand and you could get your wish, which, which group of people that are not currently members of Indoor Environmental Association would you most like to see become involved, whether it's because, you know, they're not they're not aware of the laws out there or or that they could help your members in some way? I mean, who would you really love to see become members? Hey, you know, I want to I want to mention, too, Joe, uh, you know, we're even though they're our largest group of membership, the contractors, we're constantly striving to attract more and more contractors because they're the folks out there with the feet on the ground and doing the work and either doing it correctly or incorrectly in some cases. So we're constantly striving to reach them. Uh, and then the second group is we're constantly striving to come up with ways to make sure we keep our government people involved uh, in our association. And as with part of the budget cutbacks, one of the things we've seen is it's harder and harder for the government people to convince uh, their management that, uh, you know, the amount of money required for dues should be paid every year or even more the amount of money required to attend a conference. So our board is constantly working on ways to try and make that uh, easier. We've actually come up with a new membership level for uh, government officials to join our organization uh, that's significantly less than our current individual membership rate. It's tough for them. I mean, they, they've got to get approval to join an association. It can be really difficult um, for for the people that are in the regulatory community. Um, exactly, and they and they can't take it for free. They're not allowed to do that. Uh, and many of we see that many of our regulatory members are actually paying it out of pocket uh, because it's easier for them to pay it out of pocket and keep themselves educated than it is for them to try and run it up the ladder and have it approved by a whole bunch of people. So what we've done is we've created a membership level that's at $35 for those people as opposed to uh, the individual membership is $165 annually. Interesting. Now, I'm, I'm curious, what do you see in, the, in your crystal ball for the future of EIA? Where, where are you guys headed? Uh, you know, uh, we're working on something very exciting right now that I want to share with you, uh, and, and I could talk even further about the crystal ball, but uh, we're working on a republication uh, of uh, EPA's uh, Purple Book. Uh, EPA published a, uh, the Purple Book in 1985, which is the guidance for controlling asbestos-containing materials in buildings, and uh, the Environmental Information Association is in the process right now of updating and republishing that guidance. And what that kind of grew out of was EPA came to um, the Environmental Information Association back in 2009 and said, hey, we've had this purple book out there since 1985. It hasn't been updated. Uh, could you convene a group and tell us, hey, what parts of it are good? What parts of it need to be updated? Uh, uh, where have we had regulatory changes that require changes in our manual? And if you could give us some guidance there, we'd sure appreciate it. We did that for EPA, and then we went back to them and said, hey, you know, 
we can we've got the minds together here on this committee that we convened just to give you recommendations. We can put the manual together for you if you'd like us to. And they said, yeah, please proceed. And then in the midst of that, uh, budget cuts in Washington meant that the group of folks that were working on asbestos issues in Washington, uh, their budget was cut to nothing. So EIA was left with a document that we had produced for, for the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, and an EPA said they don't have a budget to publish it. So we're going to be publishing that document. It will be available uh, at our conference in March, and we'll try and work on a wide distribution beyond that. This is not for people in the industry. This is really for building commercial building owners and managers uh, as, a, as a how-to document for dealing with asbestos in your building. You know, that's, that's, I think that's interesting. Now, are you going to have a, a print version of this and a, an electronic or just electronic? How's that going to work? It'll be just electronic. Uh, uh, it'll be a, a PDF document uh, that'll have some security around it as well. Uh, uh, you'll be able to print it if you want to, but it, uh, it will be sold as an electronic document. I see. And what about future conferences? Where do you, where do you guys see yourself headed there? You know, uh, we've got our conference in Atlanta this year, 2015. We'll be in Las Vegas in 2016. We'll be coming back toward the east side of the United States for 2000. 17 we haven't selected a location yet but that's our normal conference uh schedule has us going from the east side of the country to the west side of the country uh on uh, uh you know each each year we move back and forth as well and i think that the future of our conferences is uh we're going to continue to try to provide uh significant education around uh asbestos and lead and then in other areas where our membership says hey I'd like some education in these areas. We're going to do our best to provide education or to find speakers that can provide education uh, for our membership there. And where are they asking for our other areas of education right now? What, what are you looking well, at? Well, you know, you know the, 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 the areas of education uh, that uh, have been big have been Ebola most recently, and we're going to have some uh, sessions on Ebola at our conference uh, in Atlanta. But then um, uh, there are Issues also around um, uh, continuing issues around Legionella and what we might do around those. And uh, the vermiculite issue continues to have um, uh, a lot of questions around what's happening with that and then what's happening with this new Zonalite Attic Insulation Trust uh, that's going to actually provide money for people to get it out of their homes. So we'll have some sessions and some information on that as well. What is going on with radon at this point? If you could just give us a quick summary of where we're at with radon. It seems like, you know, it was a hot topic for a while. It kind of dropped off the radar, and then I've seen a little bit more on it lately. Yeah, you know, I think that's a great thing to bring up, Joe. I, I, my assessment of radon, both as, a, as, a, uh, as an association professional and, and as somebody kind of practicing in the uh, in environmental industry, is that it, it's a very real concern and a real problem in certain areas of the country and the U.S. Geological uh, Service has done a great job of uh, pr providing that map of where the hotspots are throughout the country. But the other reality of it is the remediation effort uh, uh, for solving a radon problem is a pretty straightforward and rather inexpensive um, fix. So I think that a lot of the hype and the concern over radon has gone away because for a couple thousand dollars or thereabouts, you can solve a radon problem in a house, and we don't worry about it again. Okay. 
All right, Cliff, anything you'd like to add before we wrap this up? We've got about four minutes to go. I don't. Uh, you can give Pete my time if you want. Oh, that's right. we got to bring the watchdog in here. Hang on one second. We've got Pete Consigli on the line. Whoop, I just hit the, I hit the wrong button, Frank. Hang in there. Help me. <laughs> hit the wrong button, folks. Hang in there. This is Radio Joe screwing up the show here. Watchdog, let's see if we got Pete. Hello, Pete. I forgot to do the roundup. Hey guys, how you doing today, man? I I just been listening and enjoying the show. I uh, you know, I'm familiar with the with the EIA, and you know, some of our members of REA have uh, you know participated, particularly the guys who specialize in environmental. Been to those conferences over the years. I think a lot of times uh, those conferences are are local, or, you know, are in March, and we over the years we've had quite a few there. So sometimes the proximity of all uh, the spring events makes it difficult for people who cross over in different industries to, you know, to attend everything. But um, when I saw your, uh, you know, your notice pop up in my inbox this morning on the week's show and I wasn't traveling, I thought I would call and listen in because the topic is interesting to me. And I think that, you know, mold has had its big, huge uh, heyday. And, of course, the lead thing uh, got on the radar screen a few years back. Asbestos is really kind of the oldest contaminant that we've had to deal with. And a lot of people just think there's not that much out. There. It's not that big of a risk anymore. Quite frankly, it really is. There's still a lot of it out there. And there's probably a whole new generation of remediators and inspectors and people who, uh, you know, are discovered it for the first time. So I think any education on that topic uh, that can be given is terrific. Uh, the RAA, you know, and our environmental committee published a uh, asbestos awareness document document about a year ago was uploaded to our website people can download it for free so um anyway that's why i called in i I thought it was a terrific interview and uh thought the information was good and um you know keep up the good work guys hey thanks pete Pete. i appreciate it you know the other thing uh, kind of responding to what you just mentioned that asbestos is very real but the other thing that i think the general public doesn't realize is that in 2015 just like in 1970, it's still legal to import, manufacture, and sell asbestos and products that contain asbestos in the United States. And I find that amazing as a person that's seen in, in the industry. Certain uses of asbestos have been banned, but we have lots of uses of asbestos that have not been banned. So the asbestos abatement industry is likely to go on for some time because it's still legal to put it into buildings in our country. Yeah, you know, and, you know, actually, there's one other actually uh, important comment that I'd like to make relevant to the topic, uh, and um, that's uh, that's an issue that the restoration and the, the garment restoration sector is struggling with. There, there, There's no information out there, nor has there been much research, if anybody does a search to look at all the papers and the literature, on the effects of, uh, what happens when asbestos after a fire or water loss or some kind of a disaster incident gets into garments and clothing and things like that? Most of the regulations out there primarily deal with the air and they deal with how to, how to deal with, you know, construction and building type materials and insulation and things of that nature. But what about when this stuff gets into the garments? That's a big, huge of a restoration, a huge segment of the restoration project. A lot of it is funded by insurance proceeds from policies and things. And, when uh, myself and some colleagues did some research, and most of the stuff out there on this, it is strictly related to, um, you know, the people who work in the industries, uh, the shipping industry and things like that, their work clothing, their, their, 
they're the kind of research and studies that are not that useful for our industry um, because they're primarily designed for long-term exposure to deal with all these mesophilia claims and all that stuff that you, you know you see on the on the ads all the time on the TV. Where it's a direct issue for our industry that we're starting to discover now is that garments and soft contents restoration has kind of become its own little niche, if you would, is when people take clothing after after some kind of a loss where there's potentially asbestos and it's being laundered and dry cleaned and things of that nature. So I, I think there's going to be some you know some research in that area, doing some testing, trying to find out best practices. Uh, those kinds of things, I think, could be very useful for the industry. And um, it's amazing that, uh, you know, nothing has really been done on it. I don't, I don't know uh, if you have any comments on that. You know, Pete, I, I appreciate you bringing that up, and, and I, I I hear what you're saying, and I, I agree with you. There's, there's, there's certainly a lack of information in that area, and that's something I'll take back to our board of directors and our membership and see if we can't put together some information that would benefit the restoration industry uh, in dealing with that, because I, I know that we've had members that have been involved in that, but has anything been published or has any any research been done? Uh, we've got to do a little work there. And I, I appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, and I, because not just for the restorers and uh, you know the contractors and the and the garment specialists, but the insurance people need advice in that. You know, uh, if there's you know obviously potential any kind of litigation, it would help the lawyers because if there's no information published, you know. They can kind of just make up the rules, and that isn't always a good thing. And, uh, you know, and it's certainly, uh, I mean, obviously it's a regulated material, but I, I don't know that it's necessarily anything on the government's radar screen. And not certainly not that I'm advocating that we want the government more involved. But I, I agree with what you're saying is if industry itself steps up through its resources, through its expertise, and, you know, starts to look at it and uh, at least make available, you know, through websites and, uh, you know, blogs and the Internet and things of that nature, Whatever's available, I, th I think it's uh, very useful. Of course, you know, the whole idea of finding research and doing things like that, um, you know, has another whole set of issues attached to it. But uh, anyway, I thought it was something worth mentioning because it kind of ties in with the theme of the show. No, I appreciate you mentioning it, and I, and I will, I'll take it back, and we'll, we'll do our best to try and, you know, hit our people up to make sure we can get something out there that's useful to all the, all the groups of folks you just mentioned. Yeah, that'll be great. And, you know, Joe, Joe and Cliff, uh, you know, have my contact information, anything that you pass on, they'll give you my email and all that. Anything that's passed on, you know, my role with RAA, I'll certainly pass that along to our technical committees and, you know, and all the people that, you know, can help disseminate the information to a wider audience. So uh, that would be great. I definitely look forward to something like that. Thank you, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. Hey, that's, uh, I want to thank the restor Restoration Industries Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. Thanks again, Pete. Always great to have you on. Hope we'll talk to you soon. All right, thank you. Cliff, All thanks, right. thanks, buddy. Great show, man. You're welcome. Thanks. All right. Hey, uh, Brent, before we go, anything that we missed that you'd like to add? I don't think so. It's been a real pleasure to be with uh, uh, with the two of you today, and uh, it was great to get Pete in there as well. And uh, I look forward to the opportunity of, uh, uh, you know, being a guest on your show some in some time in the future. Great. We'd love to have you back. Also, there was a quick text here. There are some efforts underway to address asbestos concerns and building codes done in a few jurisdictions, but not widespread yet. So uh, slowly but surely, you know, it's working its way into um, all facets of the building industry. 
All right. Well, thank, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to uh, today's guest, Brent Kynock, the Managing Director of the EIA, the Environmental Information Association, and Kynock Environmental Management. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks a bunch. All right. I also want to make sure I say thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Great job, Cliff. Thanks, John. Thank you. uh, Frank Zappa Amato here at the controls. I'm going to try and play that asbestos-led asbestos clip that we wanted to put on right before we got Brent on. Um, In fact, what I'm going to do is let uh, let Frank go ahead and do that. But anyway, I want to wrap it up by saying um, next week on IAQ Radio, we're going to have um, Don... Uh, weeks and, and his lovely wife, Lon Chi. We're going to get together and talk a little bit about the ASHRAE conference and the AHR Expo that's happening Monday, uh, actually starts this weekend and then runs through Wednesday of next, next week. week. We'll, we'll have them, them on as guests. guests. And um, look, look forward, forward to, to talking to everyone, everyone again, again next Friday for, for the next, next episode, episode of IAQ Radio. Radio.